Hello and welcome to a podcast where we take fictional science from comics, movies, TV, etc. and try to make it factually, scientifically, possibly real. I'm Stoby. I am known as Forgan. And I'm Chen. And this is the Science of Fiction. Pick up the tricorder, and put it on your head. Scanning the planet, see if anyone is dead. Autonomous car driving in Zanzibar. Beat me up, Scotty, I'm not that far. Android hoovering, tearing up the place. Flip phones and conference calls, friends in outer space. Astrophysicists sitting on my knee. Asking aliens if they like a car. I'm to fiction. To science of fiction. Welcome back, everyone. This is the third episode of the Science of Fiction. Forgan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Stop? I'm not too bad, mate. Not too bad. And we've got a special red shirt with us tonight, don't we? Yeah, we certainly do. Stu's little one isn't well, so he couldn't be on the recording tonight, but thanks to Chen for jumping in. Hello. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. How are you guys? Yeah, great. Great. I'm glad to be here. I'm quite excited to be here. <laughs> good, good. And we're excited to have you, Chen. Thank you very much, Morgan. I want to make a, a comment. I listened to your first episode earlier. And is it a, a neutron star is one of the most dense things in the universe? Is that right? One of the most dense things yeah, in the universe. After this yeah. episode, you're going to realize it's me that's one of the most dense things in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea you're going to put it to the test. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about space travel and all the different forms of space travel that have appeared in movies, games, TV, comics, as we normally do. Um, so, will we just jump right into it and explain a couple yeah. of the, the sort of more simple ones first? Let's do it. Yeah, fire away. First question then, and this is to anyone, what is a light year? Can I, can I try and answer this? Yeah, go for it. Is, is a light year a distance that it would take you to travel at the speed of light in a year, if that makes sense? That is right. It's a distance yes. that light travels in a year. Yes, that's the simple way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I believe is around 6 million miles. Uh, no. Nope. <laughs> how far is it? Oh, I can tell you Roughly. in miles. Come on. Um, oh. Are you trying to do maths in your head? Yeah, <laughs> incredible. It's 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 several hundreds. Okay, so let's 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 figure this out. It's three hundred. So it's three times ten to the eight. Yep. Per second, and that's times ten to the seven per year. So it's about ten to the sixteen meters a year. So that's one with sixteen zeros afterwards. Okay. I can't do maths. <laughs> See, so the the, the 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 guilty secret about astronomy is that we don't use light years at all. Okay. Uh, we use a different unit entirely. We use a unit called a parsec, which has a different definition and is really useful for observations. And that's why we don't use a light year. But a light year and a parsec are about the same. So a parsec is about uh, about three light years. Okay. So they're, they're they're quite close. But a parsec is something that you can you can measure. So it, it depends on 
on a physical property of, of stars. There you go. I've learned something new already. There you go. A parsec is commonly misconcepted to be a measurement of time due to Star Wars mm-hmm. and Han Solo's Kessel Run in 12 parsec. So a parsec is actually a measurement of distance. It is. So um, it, the, the word parsec is, is kind of two words smashed together, right? So the first word par comes from parallax and the second bit sec comes from arc second. So something that's at one parsec has a parallax of one arc second. So the best description of parallax is, okay, a demo, an actual demo that will not work well on radio. <laughs> but both of you guys hold your thumbs out as far in front of your face. Right, so shut one eye and look at it. Mm-hmm. Now switch eyes and just kind of switch back and forth. Now it looks like your thumb is moving, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm amazing. loving that image. Right. So the reason that it's moving is because the angle you're looking at is changing ever so slightly because you're looking from one eye to the other. Yep. And so the change in angle that you see is the parallax of your thumb. Right. So in the same way that because we move around the sun, we look at the sky from different angles. So it's say in January and in July. So it looks like the stars have all shifted and that's the parallax. So the closer you are, um, the more the shift you'll be able to see. So if you move your thumb closer and do it again, it looks like the shift is bigger. Oh, yeah. Oh, right? I'm going to get this so it covers both your faces. There's Toby's covered, then Forgan's covered. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. Right, so as things go further and further away, that parallax gets smaller and smaller. So if you know the parallax, you know the distance because we know the radius of the Earth's orbit around the sun. And so that's a parallax of one arc second means that it's a distance of one parsec away. And that's why we define a parsec. And it is not a unit of time. <laughs> so take that, Han Solo. <laughs> Indeed. Morgan, have you ever seen Event Horizon? I'm familiar with the storyline, but I don't think I've seen it. So they, they travel great distances in space. And uh-huh. how they do it is they invented a gravity drive, they called it, which generates uh-huh. an artificial black hole, which they can travel through and go very far distances. The way they describe it in the film is it folds space and time together and they just travel yeah. through it a little bit. Is that possible? Do you want the long or the short answer? Whatever you want to give. <laughs> I assume the short answer is no. You're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> so what they're describing is theoretically possible. So it's, they're describing what's basically a wormhole, right? Okay. They're describing, so the technical term is an Einstein-Rosen bridge. And it is basically a folding of space. So you kind of bend space and then you get two different bits to connect and you can kind of travel along the connection. Um, and if you could keep it stable, then yeah, it would work, right? You could be able you could go in one side, come out the other, and you'd be, you know, a great distance away. You'd kind of take a shortcut through space time. The problem is that to build these bridges and to keep them stable, you need um, what they call exotic matter, which is basically stuff that doesn't exist. So it needs to have what's called negative energy density. Um, and that's just not something that exists in the universe. So either there's some new physics that we don't know about, which lets us create negative ma- negative energy density matter, or it's impossible. I, I'm willing to think it's impossible. So wormholes are, are fun ideas, but they tend to require physics that we just don't understand. Okay. And that usually says to us that it's not going to happen. So what you're saying is the event horizon is 100% fiction. Yes. That makes the film a lot less scary for me now. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's the one with Sam Neill, right? Yes, and then who's the guy from the Matrix? Morpheus, what's his name? Lawrence. Lawrence. Fishburne. Yes, Fishburne. Yeah. 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 Did, so what's the plot of that film? Did they end up going to hell or something like I that? I think so, yeah. I think they end up going to hell and then all these demons come up and attack them and stuff. It was very scary. Okay, very scary. I'm going to have to watch it at some point. It's not scary anymore. <laughs> yeah, just fiction. remind yourself it's all fiction. Yeah. Well, there, that's my question. <laughs> all right. So just following on from that then, if it isn't a wormhole and it's just a black hole, if we were traveling mm. through space, what would happen if you fell into a black hole or, or got pulled into a black hole? Because they've got quite a strong pull, don't they? They do. So you can, you can orbit around a black hole at a certain distance and not get pulled in, right? Just in the same way that you can orbit around the Earth uh, and, and not be, get pulled in. But once you cross what's called the event horizon, oh. um, nice link. then it's a nice link then, right? <laughs> so once you cross the event horizon, you cannot move fast enough to escape. You basically have to move faster than the speed of light, and that's not currently possible with the laws of physics. It's probably almost certainly impossible. So once you're in there, you can get out, right? And you're going to end up spiraling in towards the black hole. And so the problem is that as you get closer to the black hole, um, the singularity at the center, where it's infinitely dense, you start to feel very different forces on your body. So the gravitational force on your feet, if your feet were pointing down at the black hole, is going to be much stronger than the force you'd feel at your head. So you're going to feel like you're being stretched. Uh, and the, 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 the technical term is spaghettification. So you basically get turned into spaghetti um, and you get turned into a huge tube and then torn apart. I was going to ask about that later because I've been Googling space stuff all day. And one of the, <laughs> one of the words I came across was spaghettification. It's so it's a real word, and we talk about it, and it's to do with this thing of, the, of the, the, what is essentially the tides, right? Yeah. It's the, tide, the tidal force that, you, that your feet feel compared to what your head feels, and the, the effect is to make you stretch out like a piece of spaghetti, so yeah. we call it spaghettification. Yeah, there you go. So the, the weird thing is that the smaller the black hole, the worse this is. So if you went and found a bigger black hole and fell in, the odds of you getting closer to the center get better. Because the, the change in tidal force isn't as bad. So the difference in force in your feet and your head isn't quite as bad. So you can get closer. So in Interstellar, when um, Matthew McConaughey falls into the black hole, he's falling into quite a big black hole. Uh, and that's part of the reason why he can survive inside the event horizon longer than you might expect. Because it's so big um, that this force isn't strong. So he doesn't get spaghettified immediately. Oh, but it does happen. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it should happen, right? And then, you know, at some point in the story, then they have to kind of, like, make up things. Like there's, you know, a weird room inside the black hole where you can do stuff to other people's houses and things. And, yeah, it all gets a bit bit weird and not very physical. But <laughs> <laughs> everything up to that point was kind of on the laws of physics, more or less. Oh, good. Never seen the film. I've not. I've starred it, but it was not a good version of the film. So I didn't watch <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't watch it all. It's not Nolan's best, I would say. Um, it's a good film in its own right, and it's worth watching just to see it. Um, more for kind of the visual stuff. Um, and they did some really cool science to kind of visualize the black hole. They actually ended up publishing quite a lot of academic research based on wow. the work they did wow. to produce um, the image of the black hole and this idea that you can kind of 
you can see the back of the black hole from the front because the light from the back gets bent around the black hole and it comes to your eyes. And you get these really weird-looking sort of visual images of the black hole. That's all based on quite detailed calculations by, you know, what are now Nobel Prize-winning physicists. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very good representation of the physics of black holes, except for the bit with the weird-looking room in the middle. <laughs> I need right, to, if you take that bit out. I need to watch this <laughs> film just to find this bit. Yeah. It's 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 a good film and Matthew McConaughey does all right in it, I think. Um Yeah, I think it's one of these films you think that wasn't good or bad, it was somewhere in the middle. What I've been told is it's a film you need to kind of see in the cinema to appreciate the full effect of it. Yeah, I mean we saw it in IMAX and yeah. you know the the, the scale of it and the music, it really worked for that. But when you see it on the small screen, you kind of go, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well. um, the other good thing about going to the cinema is people aren't on their phones paying half attention, then looking up and going, oh, what just happened? And then you have to rewind Yeah, it, that is annoying, isn't it? Play it again. <laughs> is that a ticket, someone? <laughs> someone who won't listen. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know you said earlier, faster than light travel is probably not possible at all and Mm -hmm. what gave me the idea to cover space travel was I've been playing Mass Effect Andromeda and in the Mass Effect series before Andromeda what happens is they've got these things called the mass relays and what they do is they kind of create a virtually kind of mass free corridor of space time between each other so they Mm -hmm. link in that way and then they propel the ship straight through faster than light so you've kind of kind of debunked my question already because i was going to say is this kind of thing possible but right at the start you killed it with faster than light it's not no. possible <laughs> it's not possible with the laws of physics currently so it might be yeah, possible okay. one day so this this idea is quite interesting because the reason that photons so the particles that make up light travel at the speed of light is because they have no mass right so mm-hmm. If, in principle, you could remove the mass from a particle, it would end up moving at the speed of light. So if you could design a technology that took something and removed all its mass, then, yeah, it would travel at light speed. So if you could design some kind of machine that did that, then, yeah, that might be a way of doing it. The problem is that we have no idea how to design one of these things, right? And, again, it breaks lots of laws of physics by just taking a particle and removing its mass. You you can't do that, right? It's an intrinsic property of a particle. The only credible proposal I've seen for fast and light travel is um, it's called the Alcubierre drive. So this guy sat with Einstein's equations and said, how can I make something where I can move faster than light speed um, you know, in some part of space? And so the idea is that you take your spacecraft and you build this distortion in space-time, and it has a very specific shape. And the distortion itself will move faster than light speed, Okay, which is allowed. You're allowed to make space-time move faster than light. That's not forbidden um, by Einstein's theories. So the bit of space-time moves, and your little spaceship is stuck inside that piece of space-time, and it just goes for the right. And then when you want to stop, you just get rid of the distortion, and your your spacecraft has moved at whatever speed you can get the piece of space-time to move at. Um, And this is allowed mathematically. Right, So there's a solution to the equations that says you can do that. The problem is, A, we need this exotic matter that we were talking about just a minute ago, so we don't know how to build it. The other problem is that when you take the distortion 
and you say, right, I want to get rid of it now, um, what you're doing is basically causing an enormous explosion wherever you arrive. So you can imagine saying, right, I'm going to build my, my Starship Enterprise or whatever, stick it inside this thing, go to warp, and then show up at the planet you want to visit and make first contact with. You come out of warp, and the first thing you do is you destroy the planet that you're about to visit. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a way of making it sense. <laughs> so there's a problem, right? <laughs> Which is what you do when you actually come out of warp. So I've not seen anyone actually genuinely talk about this as an issue. Um, or the fact that building this space-time distortion is basically impossible in the first place. So, yeah, you know, cold water on what would be a fun idea, but, you know, even with the best minds thinking about it for what is basically the last 60 years, we have not come up with a viable solution to breaking the light barrier. It's just not possible. Yet, Morgan, it's not possible yet. (laughs) Not possible yet. Probably not possible ever. (laughs) Not with that attitude. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So that's the light barrier. What's the fastest we can go that we know of? So the the fastest thing that we have ever made is traveling at something like a hundred thousandth of the speed of light. So that's zero point zero 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 one times the speed of light, which is really fast. Yeah. Right. Um. And. The problem with that is that it's going to take a long time to get from our solar system to the next one. You know, only just in the last 10 years, we've just managed to get one spacecraft, potentially two, that we think have actually left the solar system. Um, what's interesting is the proposals for what's going to happen next. And there are some designs in place for accelerating very small spacecraft. So basically a computer chip with a big reflective sail on it. And the idea is that you take this sail, you shoot a laser at the sail, and the light hits the sail and bounces off and pushes the sail forward. And if you've got a powerful laser and a light enough spacecraft, then they reckon that you can get this sail up to 10 or 20% of light speed. Wow. So if you can do that, then you could basically go to Mars in a day. Wow. Wow, okay. Which is... Like, like you literally... So the, the people who are talking about this are talking about Amazon Prime for Mars. That's their <laughs> that's their tagline, right? Which is really impressive if you can get it to work. The problem is that um, so the spacecraft are easy to build. They've got the chip that actually runs the sort of the software on the on the spacecraft. Building the sail is hard because you've got to build it small and then kind of deploy it as a big sheet. And then the big challenge is you've got to build a massive laser, like the biggest laser ever built. You know, yeah, like the Alan Parsons project type of laser, um, and then you've got to be, you know, happy with this idea that one country is going to own a laser that can shoot immense amounts of power. Because you know, if you change your mind about, say, what the frequency of the laser is, then that's just basically a very powerful weapon. Yeah, you know, yeah. and if you want to shoot down satellites or generally just cause mayhem in you know Earth's orbit, then this would be a very good thing to do, right? So. You know, A, it's very expensive. B, if the Americans build it, then the Russians will not be happy and vice versa. Um, and yeah, there's, there's all kinds of issues with it, but these are designs that are, you know, technically possible. So we could certainly travel with very small spacecraft at like, you know, 10, 20% of light speed. So the actual um, spacecraft is, sorry for interrupting, would be that small, you're saying like a centimeter big. 
Yeah, so, so like think about a computer chip. Like, if you're lucky, maybe it's the size of your smartphone, right? Okay. But then you're going to be maybe like at 5% of light speed or, or lower. Okay. Yeah. So they just so. send a computer chip to Mars just because they could. Just because they could. Or the to the next time, star, right? And a giant weapon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can go at 20% of light speed, then you can get to the next star system, you know, in like 20 or 40 years, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So that that suddenly becomes like you know you can do this in a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the people who are funding this, like the private investors, that's what they're really interested in. They want to see the results of their money. You know, mm-hmm. if I give you this much money, can you send a spacecraft to this star and take pictures? And can they come back while I'm still around to see it? Okay. So a lot of the drive is for you know private investors to have that kind of return. You know. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So with that. Like, if we send something, it takes twenty years to get out of the our star system. How long does it take the pictures to come back, or the information to be sent back? So that, that's fine because information will travel at light speed, right? So um, okay. our nearest star system is four four-ish light years away, um, and that means that we can um, we can basically send the stuff back in four years, right? So it will take quite a long time to get there, but the stuff coming back won't take us too long. Mm-hmm. So an- another issue is that you're expecting a computer chip to be able to broadcast a message back over huge distances. So how you solve that technological problem is still not figured out yet. Yeah. And it might be that you just you launch a whole bunch, so you basically make a big row of spacecraft, and they send a message to each other, sort of one to one and relay all the way back. And that might be the way to solve it, but then you have to build lots of spacecraft. But then, if all your if your spacecraft is like this size with a bit of sheet, and you've got a factory building them, easy peasy. Send an army so, out. So you send an army out, and yeah. it might also solve the problem of what you do when you get there because you don't have any control. You know, if you want to tell it to go somewhere, your command takes four years to get there, so it's got to be able to work by itself. Chances are it won't. So the first chip that we send over there is probably going to end up in the star because we don't know how to park it. But if you send a whole bunch, then one of them will probably end up in a safe orbit. However, (laughs) if you take uh, a chip that's this size and you accelerate it to like 20% of the speed of light and it hits a planet um, on the other side, that's basically like setting off a massive nuclear bomb in the atmosphere. So if we send it to another planet and there's a civilization, then they'll be basically just like started a war. Um, First contact, boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are huge problems with all these different ideas, you know, like ethical problems, technological problems, um, and then just the logistics of actually doing the thing. Um, so there, there are lots of big dreams and there are lots of big science, but no one's figured out exactly how to do this mission. How difficult would it be to plot a course for something like this? Because there's obviously lots of things floating about in space, all these planets, and you'd have to account for almost every, everything. Yeah, yeah. Like- so we know that in between us and the next star system, there's a lot of, of debris, right? There's lots of dust and gas. Um, and there's probably other bits and bobs too. There's, you know, maybe comets that have been thrown out of our solar system, bits of rock, you know, stuff that's traveling around. And if you imagine that you're traveling at light, or, you know, a good fraction of light speed and you get hit by a dust grain, that's still a very powerful impact yeah, yeah. and that can destroy your sail. So you've got to figure out how to basically shield yourself against all these impacts 
um, and still make it to the other side and still park without blowing everybody up at the other side. Yeah, like the, the, the solution is probably going to be let's not do that. Let's wait until we can build a big enough spacecraft that humans can sit on it and they can control it and they can tell the spacecraft when to stop. Um, and those designs exist, but again, they're a bit slower. They're like 2% of light speed, but you need to have nuclear fusion figured out. Um, and we don't really have that figured out either. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's up, Fair City Podcast? This is Chris and Dan from Fresh Talk. Check us out at freshtalkpodcast.com. That's right. And if you had any idea how long it took me and Dan to do that bumper, you would actually probably never listen to us. It's totally true. Get him, Stoby. Hey, Stoby, it's me, Jarrett. Go to JarrettGoesToTheMovies.com. Check out the podcast. Also go to Rockstar Dad Show. Check that one out too. It's freaking great. They're both great. Also, you just got a text and a Facebook message. And um, I probably better give you this phone back. (laughs) Hello, this is uh, Jim. And my name is Graham Chen Jack. And we're both responsible for the monstrosity that is a bloody mess podcast. We can be found at www.facebook.com slash mess podcast, twitter.com slash mess underscore podcast, Instagram is a bloody mess. And we're our alternative Wednesdays to the Science of Fiction podcast, which is a must listen. Now, here's a here's a thought that I've had is if we have this sort of light speed traveler, we have this you know close to light speed and things like that. What is there in place to protect the people inside from that extreme acceleration? Or what what would you what measures would you have to take? Because I imagine just having them pressed against a mattress wouldn't be enough. <laughs> but then I don't so know. The, the trick is that you you, you do it. You do it low and slow, right? You, so you'd have to build it up. And you just build it up in the same way that you can imagine just like accelerating a car, but just do that for years, right? You know, or you know, do it for weeks and months and years. Mm-hmm. And so it's a slow acceleration. It's maybe like two or three Gs. But if you keep doing that, the speed builds up, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you wait long enough, eventually you'll get to some sensible fraction of light speed and that'll work. And then the other side... Your deceleration it takes a long time as well, so you spend a long time with like a couple of G's, and that's okay. Um, we know that if you put pilots through like six or seven G's um, for too long, they tend to pass out, and that's kind of bad. Um, if you want some horrible stories, you should go on the internet and look at um, like the, the early rocket sled tests, um, where they basically put a guy on what was basically like the kind of you know box carts you might have made as a kid strap a jet engine on the back and just press go and these guys have experienced huge amounts of g's and you know they passed out within a few seconds of the thing being activated then they came out the other side and like you know you look at them it's just like their eyes are completely red because all the blood vessels have burst you know they've got hematomas on the brain and all kinds of horrible things and broken limbs and stuff and it's just a test to see like well how much acceleration can a human take and it, it turns out they survive, but they're not very happy about it afterwards. Yeah. You know. Just kind of testing the limits. Just testing the limits because you know, that's what the army does in the fifties when they're trying yeah. to try space travel. I can just imagine that great going, Hank. Let's see you do that one again. Yeah. yeah.
and there's, there's plenty of tax pilots who are willing to do that kind of stuff just because of you know who they are as people and um you know not me i wouldn't do it no. but <laughs> you know i, I kind of like my, my blood vessels in my eyes you know the way they're supposed to be not burst <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way I, I like my eyes to look white. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that Stu had asked, Stu, Stu's question was inspired by watching Stargate. And what he's saying is that when we see someone plugging in coordinates for warp, hyperspace, faster than light travel, would they have to account for the ongoing expansion of the universe? And if so, what would that correction look like? So this is a really cracking question, right? Um it really only applies if you want to try and move between galaxies um, because the expansion of the universe doesn't really affect things below the scale of a galaxy, at least not yet, right? So um, if you want to, you know, go to Andromeda, right, which is the nearest galaxy, so that's the nearest big galaxy, um, then if you're traveling faster than light, it will still take you some amount of time. Okay, we're assuming it's not instantaneous. Um, first of all, the Milky Way and the Andromeda are moving relative to each other, and we think that they're going to actually collide at some point in several billion years. Um, so they're moving towards each other. So if you think Andromeda is here and it takes you a certain amount of time to get there, then Andromeda will have moved slightly, right? So you're, you're going to land in the galaxy, but maybe not where you thought you were going to land. Um, so even if the universe wasn't expanding, that's true, right? Um if your journey takes you a long time, if it takes you millions of years, which, you know, it, it might well do. It's, they're millions of light years apart. So if you're traveling at light speed, then it might take you millions of years to get there. Then, yeah, that motion will have occurred, but the universe will have also expanded slightly in that time. So it might well be the case that your measure of distance between these two things will differ. Okay? Um, and you might just have to say, well, actually... It's going to be. It's going to move just because it's being attracted towards the Milky Way by its own gra- by the gravity of the Milky Way, but they're also being shifted apart slightly by the fact the universe is expanding. So you have to kind of account for both those things. So if you're traveling between galaxies, then that would be a problem. If you're in the really far future, um, the current models of the universe suggest that in the, in the far future. Even if you're traveling within the galaxy, this is going to become a problem because the expansion of the universe will also expand the galaxy as well as the distance between galaxies. And in the really, really far future, it will expand the distance between stars. It will expand the distance between planets. It may even expand the distance between cells in your body. Um, and if we're still around, you know, quadrillions of years in the future, uh, long, long time in the future, then we might end up in a situation where our our own bodies are being torn apart by the expansion of the universe. Sorry about that. That's totally cheery. Yeah. That's incredible. I hope I'm not around then. See, there's spaghettification. <laughs> spaghettification. <laughs> or torn apart by the expansion of the universe. Brilliant. Yeah. So the good news is that it's probably not going to happen to us because um, the Earth will have long gone by then. Um, and there's a pretty good chance that humans won't be around either because a lot of the stars will have died by then. Um, and there'll be very little um, opportunities for us to receive any kind of energy. So we'd have to be pretty smart to survive that long. So in Mass Effect Andromeda, then, just going back to that, what happens, the, the sort of premise of that game is that 
they send out arcs of different species to the Andromeda system through cryosleep. Mm-hmm. Do you think it'll be possible when we're getting towards the stage where the Earth is sort of ending that we might be able to sort of load ourselves up in ships and self-sustain out in space while we look for someplace else? So they've got like, you know, hydroponic systems and different areas for maintaining life, basically. Hmm. Is that something that could be possible, or would we not manage to sustain ourselves in space for long enough to find a new home? So th- this is one of the other ideas about space travel, which is that if it takes a long time, then just let it take a long time. And instead of building a spaceship, you basically build like a mini planet, and you take that with you. And if you have a crew that's big enough, then you just wander on on this little, what they call an arc, um, and it's you know it should have an ecosystem and it should have you know animals and plants and it should have you know a good collection of different species including humans and basically you take a small community you take maybe fifty or sixty thousand people maybe a hundred thousand people um, and you, you build the colony before you leave basically and there are lots of designs that go all the way back to like the seventies of how to build these kinds of arcs. Um, and essentially, the, the, the common design is you build like a cylinder, and we live on the inside of the cylinder. The cylinder spins, and that gives you artificial gravity, so you can live on the inside. Um, and if you make it big enough and you pack it with enough stuff, then it should, in theory, be self-sustaining, right? You should be able to grow your own food, um, and as long as you've got enough fuel for whatever your engine is, you're fine. The problem is that these are not perfectly sealed systems. You tend to lose things. Right, so you might, you know, through you know um, damage to the spaceship, all kinds of things that just go wrong with spacecraft. You tend to lose stuff, and if you lose small amounts of key elements, then your ecosystem starts to die. And there are things that you don't normally expect. So things like you know the, the transition metals, the, the weird stuff in the periodic table, like rubidium, molybdenum, all this kind of stuff. They're actually really important for a lot of biological processes, and you don't need much, but you need it. And if you lose it, then you know, your plants can't produce energy by photosynthesis, you can't raise crops, you can't feed your livestock, and all of a sudden your food chain collapses. And you can't get any more cows because you're, you know, several light years from your home planet. So you're kind of stuffed. So this is a problem that um, there's a really good book by um, Kim Stanley Robinson, and it's called Aurora, and it talks about this problem. And it's a good, quite a detailed discussion of how trying to build like a spaceship that would last, you know, thousands of years, what the problems are and how it can fail. Um, It's a really good discussion of how our first attempts to explore other star systems might just be a complete failure. It's a bit depressing, but it's also like a fairly accurate, (laughs) as these things go, it's reasonably accurate at a description of the problems that we still haven't figured out yet. It's quite amazing listening to you talk about this, because if you said... To me, one of the problems would be, I'd say, it'd be a mechanical failure, or you, yeah. just, you wouldn't have enough fuel to travel thousands of years. But you're yeah, about I mean, the mechanical stuff is a big problem too, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? That's where I'd go. I wouldn't go to the little biological things that you can't grow yeah. plants. You know? It's quite amazing listening to you. Yeah. Which is kind of funny in a way, because you being part of the Bloody Mess podcast, I thought you would have gone for where I'm going, which is people would go crazy and start killing each other. They probably would, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Eating each other. So the really interesting thing is that you have the, the people that, that board the ship at the start and the people that leave the ship at the end, but then you have what could be 10, 11 generations of people live their entire lives 
and never see either side, right? They, their entire life is lived on the spaceship. Um, and they have no choice, right? You're born in the spaceship, you die in the spaceship, you don't get to go off. You don't get to do anything, right? Your entire existence is quite strictly controlled because, you know, if you eat too much food, then you might disrupt the, the, the food chain. Um, if you try and, you know, build a house there, then it might destroy the ecosystem, you know, like, so the, the system of government you have to put in is really strict. Um, how do you deal with crime? Like, if somebody commits a murder, yeah. you know, is the death sentence acceptable? It's very complicated, right? isn't it? How, how do you build a prison on like a small tube with like a hundred thousand people in it? Do you have prisons? Is it is it moral to have prisons there? Um, you know, all these questions that that are people thinking about and people writing you know papers and you know doing quite interesting psychological studies of what it'd be like to be trapped um, with no way out and with the air supply being controlled by someone. Yeah, you know. If if you wanted to control the population, the best way to do it would be to, you know, switch off the air supply and say, "I'm not switching it back on until you do what I say," right? Well, that's, so, oh, that's horrific, right? Oh. So the, the potential for like fascism is horrendous. Yeah. But right? also, there would be because it'd be as you said, ten, eleven, twelve generations going on. You would need to educate every generation into yeah. you know fixing problems and how they live and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. So yeah. your engineers would be you know taught by engineers who were taught by engineers who were taught by engineers who boarded the ship yeah you know so you'd have to make sure that that transfer of knowledge was complete um and it may go wrong right yeah. you know what happens if you have a, a mechanical failure in your, in your um basically in your computer system and that means that certain bits of knowledge are erased yeah. right and if they're not recorded properly and not passed down then maybe that critical thing about how to fix the engines when you know you have a certain part that breaks if that doesn't work and obviously, Your people, people would get ill. People might die young and not pass on this knowledge mm -hmm. as well. It's, 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 mm -hmm. A lot could go wrong. And yeah, if, if you have a disease yeah. that attacks a small population, you know, if you have a, an epidemic, you don't have a lot of time to cure it before you lose everybody. Yeah. You know, and that population of 100,000 people are going to get not inbred, but the genetic diversity is going to go down and down and down and down. And so as that happens, you know, people's uh, ability to fight disease gets generally worse. You know, one one illness or epidemic will, will tend to affect everybody. You know, it's hard to build immunity in that sense. Um, so, yeah, like there's huge, huge issues with it. That's unreal. It is, it is unreal. I think to, to finish with, and this will be a bit of a shock for you, Forgan, but Chen's got a bit of a, a quiz for well, you. He's got a quiz. Yeah. He's got well, what a quiz. Got? Hang so he's going to ask you some questions. There's there's simple space questions. It's nothing to worry about. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll start with an easy one, right? I've okay. got two pages here, but I'm not going to ask them all. Which planet is nearest to the Earth? Which planet is nearest to the Earth? Yeah. Well, that's Venus, right? Well, I don't know. It actually says Mercury, but I think it's meant to say which planet is nearest, nearest to, to the sun. sun. Yeah, so this, this website is completely wrong. <laughs> okay so this is just throwing this into absolute nonsense now this is turning into a bloody mess <laughs> very nice right which planets do not have moons which planets do not have moons according to this website which could be completely wrong well Mercury and Venus don't have moons that's the two it says so there yeah. you go ooh this is interesting if it's true which planet spins backwards relative to the others. That's Venus. Oh, good. I did not know that. Yeah. 
And it's weird, it has a very long day, so the rotation period is very long, and it's backwards compared to the rest, and we're not entirely sure why. Oh, there we go. That's, that's a, Do you that's get a, younger? You get younger. Hmm? <laughs> and that's, that's, not, that's not how spin works, though, oh. unfortunately. So it doesn't work in like Superman when he goes around the Earth backwards, he goes back in time. <laughs> no, well, so my theory, did we discuss this in the last podcast? I can't remember. I think so, I can't remember, though. I don't think, uh, maybe one well, that's not been released yet. Maybe one that's yeah, not been released too, yet. Yeah. Um, so my, my theory about that is that he is actually traveling faster than the speed of light and you're seeing time go backwards. Yeah. And that's one prediction of going faster than light is that you might actually end up traveling backwards in time. Only if you travel backwards at the speed of light. Only if you're facing <laughs> backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that completes my quiz. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> I really should have read the questions and answers because even I knew that one about Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad to be of service. So thanks for that, guys. That's been a that's been a great one. Thanks for coming yeah. on chain at such Thank short you. notice. I hope I've added value to this podcast. I think you certainly have. <laughs> Thank you, Duncan. Uh, we, we we missed Stu, but um, uh, it's good to see Stu's questions coming up, and we'll hopefully see him back soon. And Professor Doctor Mister Duncan Forgan, thanks as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Um, if you have enjoyed what you want, what you've listened to today, and you want to catch up with us, you'll get us at fcpod.net forward slash the science of fiction. Chen, where can they find you? Well, my podcast or me in general? <laughs> Both. Uh, me, just search Graham Chen Jack. I'll come up somewhere. My podcast called A Bloody Mess. I believe the promo will be in this somewhere. Is that right? Yeah, it'll, be, it'll have been played about 20 minutes ago. So you've heard that we do true crime, talk about serial killers and other such nonsense, and we try and straddle the line between storytelling and comedy. So if that's your thing, come give us a listen. And I think in the promo it gives links to our website and stuff. It does. There we go. And Forgan, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is dh number four gan. So that's dh four gan. Um, you can find me there. You've been listening to another great podcast from the Fair City Podcast Network, a group dedicated to connecting and developing podcasts. Check out fcpod.net for more great podcasts and content. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of The Science of Fiction.